0: If you're under the age of 17 and you want to come on into the church, I got some cool stuff I want to share with you.
1: 36?
0: You're not anywhere near under 36. (laughs) I don't want to hurt your feelings, you know. Purchase a new iPad. Now my iPad will actually work through an entire sermon.
1: Yeah, amen. I went for a full month without one,
0: or a month and a half without one. And I, by the end of that month and a half, I was like,
1: ah. All
0: right, I just need to look over to see what the scripture was I wanted to show with you here tonight. So, Renee, remember Matthew 7:12, please, because I've I got two I have to look at. It. Oh, I forgot this part. Okay. I have two scriptures I want to read to you guys. But before I read those scriptures to you, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have heard of the golden rule? Have you ever heard that before? Well, the golden rule is a special rule that comes out of the Bible. It says, do to other people the things that you would like them to do to you. In other words, treat other people the way you want to be treated. And that's found in James, I mean, Matthew, what? Matthew 7 12. And I want to read that to you. Jesus was talking, and he said this to his friends. He said, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do that to them. This is what God's law is all about. So the golden rule in the Bible is treat other people the way you want to be treated. But you know, there's another golden rule, and it's actually called the royal law. Have you ever heard that term before? How many in the the congregation have ever heard the royal law? Aha, nobody reads the book of James. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to read it right now. Busted. Busted. I don't read anything that's not the gospel. I don't even want to talk about Jesus.
1: Alright, book of James,
0: chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is the book of James talking to us, and he said, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. What is partiality? Do you know what partiality means? I've got a cool way to show it to you. I need two volunteers. I need somebody who will pretend to be the rich person, and I need somebody who will pretend to be the poor person. Who wants to be the rich person? Tiha, come on up. Who wants to be the poor person? Nobody.
1: <laughs>
0: come on up, sweetie. Okay. Let me get my back here. Okay, who is my poor person? Here is your costume, go ahead and put it on, it's clean I promise. Of course, the poor person wouldn't normally have a clean outfit, that's okay. Here we go, put it on.
1: <laughs> there we go. Okay, that's the
0: poor person's costume, and here's the rich person's costume. There you go, go ahead and put it on. Okay, now, poor person, go out to that door over there, go out, no, rich person, you go out to this door over here, poor person, go over to that door, don't go outside of the sanctuary, just go stand by the doors. Okay, the Bible says that if you're having church and a rich person comes in, rich person, come on in.
1: Oh, we have a rich person who came to our church today. I have to get a special chair.
0: Mr. Um, um, uh, David, would you go out in the hallway and get a really special chair for our rich person? We're going to get to a really special place to sit, okay, sir? Because I want to make sure that you're comfortable and that you have a good time while you're in our church, okay? I'm, this is a beautiful outfit you're wearing. It's all sparkly and it's shiny. This is so well, Come on in. Bring in the, the special chair. <laughs> Okay, and let's see. What's a good spot? Put it right here where the special person can sit. There you are, Mr. Rich Person. You can sit in this special chair. Thank you for coming today. Is there? Can we get you some water? Would you like anything to eat? It would be really great if you want. We've got some juice over here. We could give you. No, okay. And then the poor person comes in. Come on, the poor person. Oh, it's a poor person. Um, look, uh, why don't you just sit right there?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Just go ahead, right there. That's a good thing. Just don't make any noise. Okay, because we're talking. Okay. Would you like something to drink? Do you need anything at all? Can I get anything for you? Do you see the difference? I treated the rich person really special. I treated the poor person really badly. That's partiality. And the royal law in Scripture says. You should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the golden rule says, you should treat everybody the way you want to be treated. Now, did you like the way the rich person was being treated? They got a special chair, they were offered food and drink, they were treated really special, and the poor person, we wouldn't even talk to her. and We didn't even offer her a chair, and I told her to be quiet and not disturb us. And that's that's what it means to be partial to somebody, showing preference to something, and that's not following the golden rule. Thank you guys for being the rich person and the poor person. <laughs> I will
1: take you to the costumes
0: here. Oh, that's there. <laughs>
1: there
0: we go. All right. Well, I want to pray with you guys and ask God to bless you. Jesus, I ask that you bless these kids. And I know, Father, that this idea of partiality is not something that they practice. But the reality is, as they grow older, they're going to start. And I just ask, God, that you protect them from that. Do not allow them to fall into the trap of becoming judgmental and unkind. Help them to really learn how to live out Your plan to love each other and to treat each other the way we're supposed to treat each other. And I pray, Father, that you make the golden rule and the royal law part of their everyday life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, you guys can go take a seat with your families, or back in the room where you go, whichever you prefer. Okay. Yay. See how fast they got here? One of the coolest things that I get to do as a pastor, is I get to... Know what's going on weeks in advance. And I get to see God working in cool ways. I shared with my wife this morning as we were having breakfast that that this sermon was on my heart a week and a half ago. And I was like, God, I really, I I feel like you want me to preach this, but I don't know if I have enough time to prepare. And then the very next day, that was on Thursday, a week and a half ago. Then the very next day, 17 inches of snow dumped. (laughs) <laughs> and we had to cancel church services because it wouldn't have been safe to bring everybody in to church on that weekend. And then on Monday and Tuesday, I was like, God, did I miss it? Did you just miss the opportunity to preach that? I don't know how much to preach that. So I've been percolating now for a week and a half with this idea, this thought, this, this, this word that I feel like God wants to speak over all of us. And then I come to church and I have not communicated with anybody About what I'm going to be preaching. But you were hearing my sermon all morning, Mom. It was so cool. So let me start talking with you. We're going to be doing a character study this morning. If I said the name Abraham, do you know who I'm talking about? If I said the name Sarah, do you know who I'm talking about? If I said the name Isaac, do you know who I'm talking about? If I said the name Rachel, do you know what I'm talking about? If I say the name Rebecca, do you know who I'm talking about? If I say the name Leah, do you know who I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Leah's the one we're gonna look at this morning. Leah doesn't get looked at very much in the scriptures. She's kind of like a poor person that to told just to sit in the corner and stop making noise. Really and truly. And we're gonna look at it, and honestly, I was I thought if you go into the Bible and actually do a word search, she's only in two chapters. It's really interesting. I thought she was this huge character. She's not. She shows up in two chapters. That's it. That's her story. And we're gonna—we don't have time this morning to actually read the entire two chapters. But we're going to talk about her story out of those two chapters. So if you will, with me, turn to the to the Book of Genesis, chapter twenty-nine, and we're going to look at. Leah, and we're going to look at her story, her, her life. Now, let me give you a little bit of background while you're looking that up. <clears throat> Abraham left his family in Haram, traveled with his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot, and went to the promised land. Then Abraham and his wife Sarah had a son whose name was Isaac. And then Isaac, when he became of age, uh, God orchestrated that, that Abraham sent a servant. To go back to Haran to his own family to get a, a, a wife for his son Isaac out of his own clan. And so this this servant of Abraham goes to Haran and finds a young woman. And what is her name? Rebecca. Rebecca is the sister of a man named Laban, L-A-B-A-N. She is the niece of Abraham, And she goes back and lives with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. She becomes Isaac's wife. And she and Isaac have a loving, wonderful, glorious, romantic life together. And then she finally, at a very old age, is able to have children. And she has twins. And those twins are in turmoil, even in her womb. The oldest of the two is Esau. Esau is born first. But it says that Jacob came out holding on to Esau's heel. And Jacob became known as the supplanter or the deceiver. And if you look at the story between Esau and Jacob, Esau basically, what well it says in the scripture, Esau was loved by his father Isaac. And Jacob was loved by his mother Rebekah. Why would the Bible say that? It would give us an understanding that there was some dysfunction. That Esau was held in, in high esteem by his papa, but not so much his son Jacob. Now, it's also said in the scriptures, if you were to read the story of Esau and Jacob, that Esau was a man's man. Esau was a barrel-chested, hairy guy, and he would go out and hunt, fish, and do stuff that guys do. And it says in the scripture that Jacob was a gentle soul who stayed around the tents and looked quick. Now, I'm not making any comments sociologically. I'm simply saying that's what the Bible says. Okay? And apparently, Isaac found his son Esau more engaging. And Jacob found I mean, and and Rebecca found Jacob more engaging. And there comes a point in their life, towards the end of Isaac's life, where Isaac says to his son, go out and get some game and come back and make me one of your best dishes, because I want to bless you with your birthright, I want to honor you. And so Esau goes out, and while he's going out, Rebecca goes to her son Jacob and says, your father's about to bless you, brother Esau, and I want you to steal it from him. So, go get the goat, and I'll make the best meal your father's ever tasted, and you can bring it in and pretend to be your brother Esau. And then Jacob's like, But mom, I'm not hairy, I'm, I'm smooth skinned, and dad's gonna know it's not me. So she puts goat skin on his arms and on his neck, and she puts his Esau's clothing on him. Jacob's blind by this point in his life. So then Esau, when Isaac, excuse me, when Jacob comes in to feed his father, Isaac is like, "You sound like Jacob. Come here, come here." And so Jacob quietly carefully goes up to his dad, and Isaac feels his neck and his hands. He goes, "Oh, you're hairy like Esau, but your voice sounds like Jacob." He said, "But you smell like my son." And so he blesses Jacob and gives him everything in his blessing. So then there's this contention between Jacob and Esau. So Rebekah's mom
1: hears that Esau is so angry, he's going to kill his
0: brother. And so Rebekah says to to, to Jacob, you need to get out of here. So you're going to be with my brother Laban back in Haran until all of this calms down. Get out of here, because otherwise you're going to get killed. So Jacob then goes to Haran. And he meets Laban's family, his, his uncle. And Laban has a couple of daughters. Leah, the older of the two, and Rachel. Rachel is drop dead gorgeous. The Bible says Leah has weak eyes. What that's nicely saying is she's as ugly as a dog. And she has absolutely nothing about her that's appealing. I mean, where Rachel. Excuse I me. Mean, where, where Rachel is buxom and gorgeous and hourglass figure and beautiful, four, brown curly hair, and Leah's got straight mousy brown hair, and she's a little stooped over in her shoulders, and she she won't make eye contact with anybody because she's always so insecure about herself. She's probably the one that would have been the librarian in a in a, in a modern day story. She's probably the one that that just couldn't ever really make it at the dances at the school, so she just stood against the wall and and hoped that maybe something somebody might like her. Whereas her sister, Rachel, was the cheerleader. The one that everyone thought was wonderful, hot, glorious, and great. And she was precarious, and she was outgoing. And she was really, really excited about Jacob. And Jacob was really, really excited about Rachel. And so Jacob goes to her father and he says, I want to marry that chick. She is gorgeous. I would work for you for seven years for the honor of marrying that girl. She's worth it. David's like, joke. So Jacob works for seven years, and it's like a week for him because he's so in love and so excited about having this woman to be his wife. And so they have this huge celebration, this huge wedding party, and Jacob gets flat on his butt drunk. And he goes into his, his canopy where he's going to spend the night with his wife, his brand new box of gorgeous wife
1: that's going to be his and his alone. And,
0: and he gets in there and all the lights are low. He's like, what's going on? She's like, I don't want to put on the lights. I'm too shy. All right. There's a wonderful night
1: and he gets up in the morning and he opens up the box to the tent and goes, Oh, what in the world? Laban is laying in bed next to him. Where is Rachel?
0: And so he goes to his father in law and he's like, What in the world? And this is what happened. It says in Genesis chapter 29, verse 16 through 30. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, well, it's better to give her to you than I should give her to any other man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days... Because of the love that he had for her, and then Jacob said to Laban, "Give me my wife that I can go into her, for my time has been completed." So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not so. It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. What he means by that is the week of the seven days of the marriage ceremonies. Complete that week, and then we'll give you the other one in return for serving me for another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed the week. With Leah. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his female servant Bilpa to be the daughter Rachel, uh, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Laban. and served Laban for another seven years. Okay, ladies. Imagine you're Laban. this man that you probably loved from afar but never thought you could possibly even possibly have to know that you, you played a part in the deception when he was drunk when he couldn't make a decision for himself and he wakes up next to you and wants to chew off his arm because you're coyote ugly and then he goes to your father and says what in the world did you do to me? And then the father says, well, uh, we'll make it right, we'll make it right, look, you spend the week with her, then you never have to be with her ever again, you'll have Rachel anyway. Just work another seven years, okay? That's fine, it's worth it.
1: It's worth it, because I want Rachel. How does life feel? What kind of a, a, a,
0: a trauma is happening to her heart right now?
1: I mean, she's always been in her sister's shadow her
0: whole life. And now be humiliated like this. It's disgusting. Go on to chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Lady was hated by her husband, the Lord opened her womb, but Rachel was barren Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Because she gave him a son. You, You do understand how important boys are to a culture like that. You'll see in a minute how important they are. She then conceived a second time, and she bore a son. And she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am in, he has given me this son also. And she named him Simeon. And again, she conceived and born. Now, how many months does it take for a woman to have a child? And did you understand that genetically, women don't normally, normally ovulate while they're nursing their baby? So what does that mean? That means that she had a baby, took nine months or so, ten months, then she's nursing that child usually for about two years. Then she begins to ovulate again and becomes pregnant. Okay, so this is not just, I had a baby, I had a baby, I had a baby. This is years. So now she's got three kids. I have given him
1: three sons. So she calls this child Levi.
0: And then she conceives again. And again she bears a son. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah. Judah. Then she ceased bearing. And as I was having my devotions a week and a half ago and I read this portion of scripture, that phrase, then, I mean, this time I will praise the Lord, just jumped off the page at me. This time? I mean, she had three sons prior to this. Why this time? But look at those four boys and the names she gave them to give you a glimpse into her heart. The first son, Reuben, means, behold, a son. Literally, as she holds out the baby to her husband who hates her, she says, I gave you a son. Do you see the son I gave you? Apparently it won't change the relationship. And another year or two or three goes on and she probably has another child. And this time she means him Simeon, which means heard. And what did it say in the scriptures? Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. He has heard me. He's heard the soul cry. And he's given me another son and so now I have the beloved
1: God heard me.
0: And another two or three years go by. And she's still the hated one in the house. And so she has a third child. And this time she names him Levi. And do you know what Levi means?
1: Joined to. Or attached.
0: And look what she says as she gives the, name, the child the name Levi. Now this time my husband will be attached to
1: me because
0: I have formed three- sons- See, my initial thought, when I read this, was that she finally settled things in her heart. She had finally found the rest for her feelings of inadequacy and her rejection by finally, instead of looking to her husband for some kind of healing for herself, she finally was looking to God for the healing that she needed for her heart, for her soul, for her mind. But the reality is that was wrong. Because if you continue reading Leah's story, You see the sibling rivalry between her and Rachel continues, and it gets vicious. And again, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, so let's skip down to chapter 30, verse 14. Hear this little episode out of Leah's world. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went. Reuben was who? The oldest boy. Reuben was probably at least 12, maybe 13 years old by this point. In the days of the harvest, Rubus went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And Leah looked at Rachel and said, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Now, what would prompt that? Why would this woman say unkind, mean words to her sister? Because that was their relationship. God's Now, remember, in this this nomadic environment, they had their own separate tents. They didn't live in the same house, but they lived in the same compound. So Leah had her tents, Rachel had her tents, Leah and Rachel had her servants in her world, and Rachel had her servants in her world. And so it was like two separate warring households, and there was this constant. Every time they went to get water, every time they went to food, every time they hit your feet, you kicked them, constant nastiness. How dare you ask me to give you my son's mandrakes? My son went out and got those things from me! What does Rachel say? Alright, fine, if it's that big of a deal to you, give me the mandrakes, you can have Jacob for the night.
1: Can you imagine that?
0: But Leah is so desperate to have Jacob touch her, to have Jacob pay any attention to her at all, that she's willing to sell
1: to get him.
0: And then, not only does she do that, but then when Jacob comes back into the camp. She calls out to him as he's heading to his favorite wife's tent.
1: Ah, excuse me, excuse me.
0: You're mine for the night. i paid for you. Didn't that make Jacob love her that much more? But he still went in. And he still had his way with her. They conceived again. And this time he gave her another son. And this time she named this son Issachar. You know what Issachar means? Wages. Recompense. Being paid for a harm that was done to me. And then finally, again, a couple of years pass, and Leah conceives with the fifth, sixth time. And this is what was so sad to me. God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. She named him Zebulon, which means exalted or honored. My husband will honor me because I bore him six sons. marketplace
1: people talking about
0: me who gave six times from my own body and finally this is what's so sad it says and she bore a daughter named her dying. that's the end of Leah's story Dysfunction, so much brokenness. And I have to tell you, it wasn't Leah that made it up, and it wasn't Rachel that made it up. It came from their parents. And honestly, it came from Jacob's parents too. You heard me talk about what Jacob and Esau went through. You heard about how how, um, how Isaac blessed, he was going to bless Esau, Well, there's something in the very Mosaic Law that I read this week. I know that I've read it before, but I had never, ever fully read it before. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. I'll repeat that. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. God specifically said in the very Law of Moses if a man has two wives, and the one loved, one is loved and the other is unloved. Both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved wife, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved one. As the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved one who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now think about Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Leah gave Jacob Reuben as her firstborn. Rachel gave Jacob. Joseph as her firstborn. And what did Joseph, I mean, what, did, what is Joseph known for? His coat of many colors. Being the favorite one out of twelve. Being the one that his father held up in the huge esteem. Do you, do you understand why God had to put it in his very law?
1: Because the heart of humankind is so corrupted and
0: so broken and so damaged that we pass that on over Isaac and Rebecca passed it on to Jacob and Laban. Laban passed it on to his daughters. You heard me read the story? What
1: Laban did
0: and how he manipulated his daughters. He set them up for failure and then condemned them to a life together forever on this earth. <laughs> The cool part about this, though, and this is something that I, 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 because I didn't do this study until just this last week, I never realized, the Bible specifically talks about breaking generational curses. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 29 and 30, it says, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. That was an old proverb, an old saying in Hebrew culture. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own sin, his own iniquity. Every person who eats severed grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Because it used to be thought, and part of their culture, that if the father sinned, that the sins were visited upon the sons and the grandsons all the way down to the fourth and fifth generation. Because that's what was said. But God said in Jeremiah, and then again in Ezekiel chapter 18, that is no longer the way out of relating to human beings. The way I'm relating to human beings from this day forward is you sin, you pay. You sin, your son or your daughter doesn't pay. They have the choice to sin and not sin. If they do sin, they'll pay. If they don't sin, they're not going to pay for your sins. This is how it's going to be from this point on. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30, it says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Hear that one more time. I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. I found this cool quote on a website called gotquestions.org talking about generational curses and breaking them. And it said this, The cure for generational curse has always been repentance. If my parents were unrighteous, I have to That's not what I'm hearing said. Let me read to you one of, the other, one of my other thoughts. <laughs> Up to this point, our discussion on breaking the generational curse has focused on not following in the footsteps of the previous generation. Not choosing unrighteousness. The, the idea of repentance, the idea of, of turning away that's something every single one of us has an opportunity to do. And God has said, I no longer hold your mother's sins against you, your father's sins against you, it's your sins that I'm going to deal with. And as long as you repent of your sins, I will cleanse you from your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. You will be righteous in my sight. You will be clean, you will be holy, I will accept you, there is no question. But when we're talking about generational sins, there's more to it than just guilt before God. There's more to it. And that, that more is this. What about the emotional, psychological, relational, sociological effects of generational sin on the children, on the children of the errant parent? How is that to be dealt with? Look at Leia's dilemma. She almost made it out. She gets to the fourth son and she goes, praise God. She turns her eyes upwards instead of out towards her husband who's not providing what she needs. She finally looks up and says, I give you praise, oh God. But she falls back into the same pattern. Because day by day by day, she's still in that nasty, vicious ugly situation where she's contention with her sister, where she doesn't have the love and respect and honor of her husband, where her children are fighting against the other kids, where she literally has to pay to have sex with her own husband. It's a pattern that happens day, day after day after day after day. And the upward vision comes back down to what she faces every day. And she falls right back into that same pattern. Now that I have a son, he'll be attached to me. Now that I have a son, he'll speak of me and I'll with offer me. I have to no looking to God. And so I would say to you, that to live a righteous and holy life to break the generational curse of 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 unrighteousness you have to repent. You have to turn from sin. You have to live a righteous and holy life and you're not held accountable for anything that happened in previous generations. It's what you did or don't do and how you respond to God in the blood of Christ. That's one part of it. But the other part of it is you inherit generational baggage, if you will, from your mommy and your daddy and your great-grandma and your great-grandpa and all the way back to Adam. How do you deal with that how do you deal with that? Because I guarantee you I can't find anything in the scripture that promises every single one of us healing in those areas. It's possible. It can happen. It does happen. But there is there's this, this mistaken understanding or thought that if I ask Jesus into my life everything about my life that's good.
1: <laughs> it's
0: not the way it works. I want to give you three thoughts. Write these things down as I say because they're profound. I
1: thought they <laughs> I even went
0: back to the old preacher thing about using alliteration in the same form of the sentence. So there's lots of B's and P's and S's in my statements. They're really cool. First one. Break the power of the secret. Break the power of the secret. If you are struggling with something, if you are dealing with shame, pain, disease, some form of emotional distress, some form of relational issue, some form of dysfunction,
1: name it. Don't be hiding it. Amen.
0: Because if you name it and then turn it over to God in prayer, seeking others to pray with you, yes. Psalm seven three says, He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. Hallelujah. You need to break the power of the secret. Because once it's out of the open, it can no longer hold you. Glory to his name. The second one. Break the power of the shame.
1: I'm
0: not worthy. If you knew the inside, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor. If you knew
1: all the things that happened in my wonderful day by day
0: life, you wouldn't let me stand up here and stand in this pulpit and talk to you and say, Thus says the Lord. Those are lies from the pit of hell. Amen. And quite honestly, I lived with shame for many, 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 years, many, 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 many years. I was sexually molested when I was a 10 and 11, 9, 10, 11-year-old kid by a 16-year-old guy from across the street. It affected my marriage. It affected my career. It affected my relationship with my kids. It affected my relationship with other ministries. It affected my ability to pastor. Uh, no, it didn't affect my ability to pastor. Because I didn't get pastored until the shame was gone, thank God. But I, I got molested when I was 9, and the shame didn't get taken from me until I was in my early 40s. 30 plus years living with shame. Do you know, and I I, I point to this all the time, you see what I'm wearing on my wrist? A red wristband on my watch. This is intentional. I drive a red truck. It's intentional. I could not wear red because of shame. Long story, you've already heard it, you don't need to hear it again this morning. If you want to hear it come to me later, I'll tell it to you. But my wife said to me one day, Bob, this was after the shame was done. Bob, you never wore red before, and now you're wearing red. What's the deal? Wow. God brought me right back to that moment where the brokenness happened in my life, where red became hard to do. But because I'm free from the shame, And praise God, I'm 61 years old now. It's been 20 years plus. I'm free from the shame. And it's so empowering, let me tell you. I don't have to be afraid to come and talk to somebody about their life. Because
1: the enemy can't
0: say, I'm not worthy. Because I already know I am. Break the
1: power
0: of the shame. Let me give you a verse that will help you with this. five verses, but the last one, verse five, is actually the best. Romans chapter five, verses one through five. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Break the power of the shame. And the last one break the power of the sinner. What? What are you talking about? You said I'm standing in righteousness, God. I'm no longer a sinner. I have the Holy Spirit in my life, who's bringing me healing. And, and God has taken. God has already taken away the secret. God has already taken away the shame. Why do I have to break the power of the sinner in my life? It's not the sinner in my life. It's the sinner who did the damage to me. Did you realize that in the, in the prayer you prayed with me this morning? The our Father, it says, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from all evil. But before that, just before that, it says what? Forgive our sins as we forgive
1: those who have sinned against us.
0: Why is that there? Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you don't forgive people who have harmed you, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. Forgiveness is in the life of a Christian. You have got to forgive those who have harmed you. Luke chapter 22 verses 34 gives the supreme example of Jesus Christ forgiving those who have harmed him when he was on the cross. In his last gasping breath he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. If Jesus can say that from the cross, you can certainly say that from your prayer room about the person who hurt you and caused all the pain in your life and caused you to feel less than and caused you to feel shame and caused you to have to hide secrets. I can tell you in my own life, I already shared with you, I was molested when I was nine, ten years old. I was in Bible college when that time of shame was being taken from me, 2002-2001.
1: God broke through, and all the boil of hate from my
0: perpetrator, that I held against my perpetrator, was gone! Because it came out like a boil bursting. It literally did. That evening was scary for the rest of my classmates and the professor. They didn't know what to do with me because I literally went into a meltdown. I was in the men's room of that small building, literally trying to trash, trying to bend the metal partitions in the bathroom in half, trying to rip the porcelain off the wall and smash it if I could. And I literally ended up in a crumpled heap on the floor up against the wall, crying, screaming,
1: snot, screaming, I hate I hate
0: out all of the vicious garbage. But it wasn't until just a few years ago. I've been here almost seven, almost 18 years. It was just a couple years ago. So 15 more years after getting rid of the I hate till I'm standing in a teen camp. And the, the speaker had done this powerful, powerful speaking on pain and hurt and shame And then he tells us all to go and pray. And we're supposed to be praying for each other. But I go and I sit by myself and I begin to pray. And do you know what I prayed? God, I don't know where he's at. I have no idea he's still alive. Would you please bring him to some form or fashion into the shadow of the gospel so he can see that light and be drawn to you and be forgiven of his sins, God. I want to be able to stand next to him in glory and be a brother to him, God. I want to be able to say, I forgive you to his face. And God whispered back to me, complete healing, Bob, has taken place because you're no longer hating And you're no longer harmed, and you're now compassionate toward the one who caused the harm. You have forgiven him, Bob, and you can now walk away from this with your head high. And I have. And I wear red. And God fixed what was broken on the inside. Three things you need to walk away from this sermon. Break the power of the secret. Break the power of the shame. And break the power of the sinner. Those sound like commands. They're not. They're offers to you from the Holy Spirit of God saying, If you will allow me, I can. you
1: hear the difference?
0: This isn't something you have to do. It's not something you can do. But you have to start it. You have to say, God, as much as it hurts, as much as it's going to hurt, do what you've got to do. I open myself to you 100% because I want to be on the other side. And so I, I, I can encourage you at this point. I prayed about how to end this sermon, and I, I thought about a, an altar call, but the reality is we're not physically unable to really do one hand with COVID. I didn't want to bring everybody together, but I do want to do this. I want to spend at least one full minute. For those of you sitting in the pew quietly, that's a long time. I want you to spend one full minute. If God is speaking to you about any part of this, yourself up to him and let him do what he needs to do. If you're sitting there going, wow, I'm already past all of that. God's already brought the healing in my life. Then you pray for somebody in this room who needs it. Because I guarantee you there are some of you in this room who have a secret that you don't want anybody to know about. Or you are carrying shame that you've never been able to shake free of. Or you are still unforgiven when it comes to that person that hurt you. So let's close in prayer, and then we're going to be quiet for just a minute, a full minute, and then Mandy will come up to read the scripture. Father God, thank you for what you are doing right now. Thank you for your power, for your healing, for your tenderness, for your loving kindness, for your care. Father, I ask that you would move amongst us in a a way that is appropriate and right to each person, and that you would bring the healing and the freedom that is needed. I ask this in the powerful name of Jesus.